Hello, dear friends and future clients. And that's all of you, by the way. I'm Dorothy, also known as Death Herself. Now, as you can imagine, I've been even busier than usual with the business of death lately, which is always a very busy business, even during the best of times. But since, unlike my predecessor Todd, I think that the education and outreach portions of the job are just as important as the actual delivery of the work order, that is death, I simply must continue to devote time and energy to telling the story. My story, that is. And now, on to chapter two of how I became death herself. What's your name, honey? I mean, the way he says that. With his hand, with his bony old hand, clinging to my arm. And as if he hadn't spoken in years. As if he had all the time in the world to deliver that one sentence. Now, most people, faced with this, would have just turned away. Gotten on with their lives or whatever they were involved with. Moved on. But I stay with him all the way. I hang in there, waiting as each word agonizingly passes by. What's your name. Now that, I grant you, is not really a tough question, but it had been a very long and very weird day with the meatloaf and the helicopters and the man with the little flashy thing and all. You know, it just caught me off guard, right? My name? It seemed at the moment just out of left field. My name? You don't say. I just got nothing, right? Just a vast emptiness, a big blank, a hole in the ground. At the same time, it seems very important that I answer this question correctly. I can't say why, but I just think there will be big trouble if I get this one wrong. I get a little dizzy, and I see, out of the corner of my eyes, scraps of paper floating out there in the darkness, with words like factotum, francophone, and abysmal, dreage, happenstance, armistice, none of which really grab me, and none of which seem plausible in the least. And then floating my way, another little scrap of paper with flowers drawn all around the edges with a purple pen. And on it is written, by hand, with the same pen, in all caps, the word, name tag. Someone out there is trying to help me. I've been hit on the head, perhaps. I'm a little weak in the mind. I need a hand. My guardian angel, perhaps. Yes, of course. I have a name tag, with my name. There it is. Hello. My name is Dorothy. It seems plausible, even if a bit unfamiliar. I get a flash of a tornado, a green sky, a little dog, a bad lady, bicycle, monkeys. Someone wants my shoes. So I take the name tag off. After all, I don't need it anymore. I got fired. So this is kind of like closure. And I slide the name tag slowly across the bar to him. I read it for him, slowly as if he's deaf or can't read. Hello, my name is Dorothy. I place my hand on my chest to indicate this. He appears satisfied with the answer. He smiles and examines the name tag carefully. And yours, I ask? Nothing. Your name, Ahani? I ask. Silence. He looks at me again, unwavering. Staring again. Your name, I say to him. But he's drawing a blank too. I can see that. 
It's super cute. Our first meeting and already we've got so much in common. Neither of us can figure out our names. I am patient, though. I sip my drink and wait while the rusty old gears turn inside his head. Finally, he quakes a little bit and coughs up a name. Todd. He looks very well pleased with himself. As if he's passed a test he never knew existed till now. We're in this together. Well, Todd, I say, it's a pleasure to meet you. I sip and tilt my glass towards him. It is, he says. He's taken aback. Well, sure it is. Why wouldn't it be? I clink glasses with him again, but no response. The glass sits on the bar. He must be Amish. He has no idea how to behave here. But I decide to take him under my wing and teach him the basics. Conversational drinking 101. Your master class, as taught by me, Dorothy. All right, Todd, follow my lead, okay? Pick up the glass. Action guy, he is not. Come on, just wrap your hand around the glass and slowly lift it. I have to walk him through the whole thing. Next, soft clink of the glass against mine. Uh Uh-huh. Eye contact, brief. And then, cheers. And then, sip. It's that easy, Todd. Now, this takes almost forever, I'm telling you. Nothing like eternity, thank God, but still. Slow learner, the guy is. But finally, he gets the gist and has a sip. Brief eye contact, all the rest. And now we talk. Terrific conversationalist. By which I mean he listens to me a lot. I sip and drink and prattle on and on, blah, blah, blah. My crazy day, my brother, the insane meatloaves, those assholes. And he's like, wait, meatloaves? Really? And I'm like, yes, meatloaves. It's not a joke. It happened. It was terrifying. Okay, all right, he says, meatloaves. So then we move on to the standard getting to know you dialogue. So what do you do, Todd? Silence. You know, Todd, what do you do for a living? A living, he asks. Work, I mean, your day job. Oh, long pause here, right? It can't be this hard, right? Wholesale, I guess, he says. Okay, well, how's it going, the wholesale? It's like pulling teeth with this guy. It must be from spending all of his days behind a couple of donkeys or something. Well, he says, I've been in business forever takes a sip. He started to get into the flow of it here. He grips the glass tightly. I've been doing the same thing over and over and over and over and over. All right, got it, Todd. You've been doing the same thing over and over. Weird thing is, he says, they never seem to get tired of it. I do, but they don't. Who, the customers, I ask? Uh Uh-huh. I can't seem to escape it. Must be my karma. He actually does the air quotes thing. Who is this guy? I grab the bottle of doers and do what's needed. I sip again. So does he. He's grinding his jaw now. Those baby boomers. Yuppies. They miss their appointments. They won't pick up the phone. They're too busy. Don't you know who I am, they say. Can't I send someone else? Isn't there someone we can call about this? I want to talk to the manager, they say. And then, Todd continues, when I get all medieval on them, they're surprised. I take a sip. Well, with an attitude like that, Todd, I'm not surprised business isn't all it could be. 
You can't force people to do business with you. I can't. And he looks really scary for just a second there. Then he softens and says, No one likes to be ignored. Well, maybe it's your presentation. Your coat. It could freshen up a bit. Spruce up. Even if you're stuck in the office all day, it could make a difference in your self-image, you know? I don't want to get too personal, but, you know, skin tone. These things are important, Todd. You know, just spruce it up a little bit. That's all I'm saying. You think it might help? Well, of course I do. And now I'm off. A little scotch and I'm the most helpful person in the world. And I don't need to know anything about it either. Ignorance doesn't slow me down at all. Maybe you could get out of your warehouse and go retail, I say. Start some boutiques or something. There are just so many opportunities today. Vertical integration, blogs, price competition. Eliminating the middleman, globalization, work directly with the customer. This is all stuff I got from magazines at the dentist's office. It could be so much more fun, more interesting. It could be, hey, how's your website, Todd? He gives me a blank, guilty stare. Oh my God, you don't even have one, do you? Jeez, you really need some help. I put my hand on his arm. He's kind of shocked by that small gesture, I can tell. Poor guy, needs a hug. Bad, this one. But then, seemingly, just to make sure this doesn't go anywhere, a piece of onion skin paper, very thin paper, old-fashioned, floats slowly down from the dark heights above, slowly sinking like a leaf on the breeze, back and forth, back and forth, slowly, slowly, until it lands softly on the bar, right in front of him. Dot, that is. He looks at it and sighs. This is something he'd rather not see, obviously. Not surprised, disappointed. It's covered in tiny printing and seems to have several different colored stamps on it, like a document from a French post office. Now sitting next to Todd, on the other side, is Ivan, a regular, an acquaintance. Asked me out a few times, but not my type at all. He's okay. Todd gingerly reaches out and touches the delicate paper in front of him. And suddenly Ivan sits up straight, grunts, bumps up against the bar, and then falls back off the stool onto the barroom floor below, clutching his chest, grimacing, groaning in pain. It's a heart attack. Anyone who watches TV knows what this is. So I rush around the bar. We food and beverage professionals are not trained in emergency services, but we are trained to be of service. And so even though I have no idea what to do for someone having a heart attack, I jump in. I kneel down, grab Ivan's hand, put my other hand on his chest, and look into his eyes. That's basically my toolkit there. I can't yell crash card or get me something stat or anything like that, or read off any condition to some kind of assistant. He's scared, that's all I know. He's terrified. And I can see he's very tired, too. I can see that. I look up at my new drinking buddy, Todd, who's looking down at the proceedings as if everything in the world is just as it should be. Todd, come on, man. Call 911. Todd looks down at us, takes another sip of doers, and genuinely surprised, says, Why? For Christ's sake, I go back to Ivan. I look into his eyes and feel his hand clutching mine. And then something really strange happens. I'm with him. I mean, I'm going with him. Yeah, Ivan is dying. He's going from here over to there. 
and I'm going with him over there. I feel what he feels, I see what he sees, and all the rest. The overwhelming embarrassment of dying on this sticky barroom floor. Not here, he wails internally, not this sticky floor. Not like this. And then the regrets start to pile up. In brief, he doesn't really have time to linger over them. They come and go, just like, where are my kids, my family, my friends? This is my life flowing away. And what was it after all? What became of it? What happened to it? Why didn't I do something with it? Why wasn't I more brave? Why didn't I? And now that I, Ivan, see that this is too late, it's shocking. It's terrifying. This enormous sense of self-betrayal. He sees how his late lamented life was so much more than he thought, and so much less. So much more in the sense that he never really got how precious it was, how much of a gift, how unique, how incredible. And so much less in the sense that, like most of us, Ivan thought, without thinking about it much, really, that his life was this long, 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 endless story, this huge novel, this grand or not-so-grand opera, page after page after page, some telenovela without an ending. Posts and comments or short stories, short or long, or even a profit and loss statement. Any narrative will do, just as long as the ending isn't too soon. But no, it was a dream. It was all a dream. You know, we're like mayflies this way. They live for a few hours on a summer day, maybe eight or nine, who knows. There's a couple of mayflies, Dorothy and Ivan, clinging to a twig over a little rivulet in some backyard somewhere in southern Indiana, chatting it up, you know, just passing the time. And hey, Ivan says, Dorothy, remember when we were kids, like two hours ago? Oh yeah, Dorothy says, things were different back then, quieter. You could get a parking space. People are nicer. Things move more slowly. It's not rush, rush, rush like it is now. Sad, really. But Ivan says, what if we mayflies through some kind of high-tech medical advance that I read about in Reader's Digest? Maybe we could live 10 or even 11 hours, say. Imagine that. Imagine what we could do with all that extra time. Yeah, amazing. Ivan says, you know, I always wanted to try scrimshaw, but I just never seemed to have the time. And Dorothy says, you know, I never let go of the idea that I might learn Mandarin, but I just never had the time. And then the big finish, Ivan and I see his life as one infinitesimal, one tiny, tiny little spark Bing. out in the utter blackness of infinite space. Bing. There it is and gone, all done. Bing. Gone forever. He's done. It's over. That's all. And then soon, but not soon enough if you ask me, I'm back in the human realm, kneeling on the floor of the dewdrop dead end, with the dead guy's cold hand in mine. Time and space, humans, the warmth of the sun, and life all reestablished. The spirit has flown, and I saw it go, up close and uncomfortable. And I look up at my new drinking buddy, Todd, and I know now what you had probably figured out already. That he's death himself. Having today come by the dewdrop dead end to do a job of work. To execute, pardon the expression, a work order named 
Ivan. And now it's done. We just look at each other. And I can tell that he's just as surprised and befuddled by what just happened as I am. I don't know how long we just looked at each other, trying to puzzle it out. Minutes, half an hour, I just don't know. And then Todd smiles for the first time and says, good work there. And he finishes his scotch and slides off his stool and grabs his big farming implement and says on his way out the door, it's a pleasure to meet you, too. Perhaps we'll see each other again sometime. And then the place is utterly silent, except for the hum of a refrigerator in the corner. It's strange. I feel sorry for Ivan. But I'm elated at the same time. Why? What just happened? Who was that? I fold Ivan's arms over his chest. I stand up, go behind the bar, and call 911. I say, Bud, Bud, wake up. I just called 911. They'll be here soon. And I walk out of the dewdrop dead in. And it feels like something is done and gone forever, and I'm not talking about Ivan's life. Deep blue sky of the early evening, new moon, Venus, Jupiter, some planets, I'm not sure, but they're beautiful, whatever they are. And I'm just happy, walking along, not knowing where I'm going. Too bad about Ivan, yeah, but I'm thinking about my new friend. Sure, he's kind of strange, but then who am I to complain? I'm so excited. I think maybe I'll tell the meatloaves about my new friend. Surely even they'll be excited for me, right? And then I remember I killed them all. And they wouldn't care anyway, those assholes. Speaking of which, as soon as I think of the cafeteria, I'm quit now even more than before. I can never go that route again, no matter what. I walk away singing a song, bright and clear-eyed, confident of my prospects. That drink with Todd... It's done something. I'm confident. I'm confident or something. I haven't felt it before. I'm not sure what it is. I walk the world again with childlike energy, enthusiasm, and optimism. It's been a long time since that happened. Looking for some new kind of work, but as is so often the case, the thrill is short-lived. In a few days or weeks, the search ends in abject failure. No need to elaborate. It's a long story. I can tell it's short. I tried. I failed. And doubly so, since I feel like I've been shown something else. That I've been given a glimpse. But here I am. What it was or is, I don't know anymore. And I'm filled again with doubts. And so I hit bottom. Even more so than before. It's really kind of a physical sensation. You know, like a, maybe like a huge ship, perhaps a German battleship like the mighty Bismarck. Slowly, slowly, silently dropping through the cold ocean waters of the northern Atlantic and then gently, softly, heavily, settling in on the clean sand of the ocean floor. Flump. There, the bottom. I'm there. And I can feel it. And it's a surprisingly pleasant sensation, actually. You stop worrying about how much worse things can get. They can't, so that part's done. You give up. You accept. 
my own efforts have taken and left me here. I don't know why now, since I'd never done it before, but I do it. I ask for help. Help, I say. I'll do anything is the obvious intimation, the clear context. Anything. And now it's done, the asking for help thing. But aside from that, I'm not clear at all, so I sit. I'll take anything, prior conditions noted. Cafeteria work, that is. Aside, I hope. Thank you in advance, I say and feel. And then, a bit later, I'm on the bus reading a magazine. And here's an ad that catches my eye. Because, for one, it's so poorly designed it stands out, but ugly, insulting it's so bad. It reads in big black and red type in a kind of old-style communist script. Can you sell something that everyone in the world has to buy? And then right below that, in all caps, it says, Dorothy? Question mark. Join our team. We're killing the competition. Dorothy? We'll train. No experience is possible. Dorothy? Now, there's no website or phone number, only an address that of a fancy hotel out in the suburbs, and the date and the time, and very close to now. I do some quick thinking. The crux of the matter to me, how many Dorothys would read this ad? How many would need a job so bad that they'd respond to such an ad? I'm guessing, of course, but I'm thinking eight or nine tops. But really, in my heart of hearts, I'm thinking three, maybe four max, which means I have an excellent chance of scoring the job, all other things being equal, whatever it was. Because coming right now, this ad speaks to me. This is the word, the message, plus my name, of course. No more cafeterias. It's my vow. I've made the decision. I'm going out to hotel land where this interview with the Dorothys is going to take place. It takes me hours on the bus, of course. When I finally get out there, I walk through parking lots and in the front door of a Walmart, then out the back door. And finally, I make it out to the rest inn. In through the lobby, I go down the hall to the elevator up to room 2346. I'm a mess, sweating like a pig. I smell like a construction worker on Friday afternoon. Totally rank. And I'm beside myself with fear and anxiety. Oh my God. I'm hours late. They probably aren't even here anymore. Oh hell. I stop in front of the door, try to compose myself, but it's really impossible by this time. I've broken a heel and my mascara's running everywhere. I look like a crazy person, I'm sure. So I start to knock on the door to room 2346, but, but listen to this, before I can, the door starts to open, creaking slowly, seemingly by itself, I see no one, and smoke gathered around the floor, pours out of the room and twirls around my ankles. And I walk into the room. Now, of course, I shouldn't have walked into the room. I've seen the horror movies. You know, someone is missing, and they say, okay, let's split up. And you know, three of them are going to die, and one of them is going to die by walking into a dark room where the door is open by itself. And now I'm going to walk into the dark room by myself. I know, you don't walk in the door, but I walk in the door. It's humbling because I was always the one to yell at the screen, don't do it. You've separated from your friends and now you're going to walk into the dark room by yourself. Everyone in the world but you knows you don't go in the room 
but I go in the room. Well, since it's dark in there, I can't see a thing, right? Just a TV in the back of the room with the gray bars going up the screen. I could see the smoke detector has been ripped out of the ceiling as hanging by one wire in the dense fog of bad cigarettes. Now I know what kind of trouble I've got myself into. I mean, these people are capable of anything. I mean, that's a federal offense. Who are these people? As my eyes adjust to the smoke in the dark, I can at some length see three people sitting behind a table, looking at me, or in my direction at least. It's hard to say. It's hard to say if they're even alive, really. Two men and a woman in between them, all wearing black suits, narrow black ties. It's like that scene from Cocteau's Orpheus. I mean, like exactly. Really, it's weird. And these creepy people just stare at me. I get that awkward feeling you get when you walk in on a very important personal conversation. But in this conversation, no one has said anything for about a hundred years. And now I've interrupted. I have to consciously remember what I'm here for. I came here for a job, yes? I have to see something to break the ice or I'm just going to die. So I get my full chirpy thing going, right? Self-defense. And I ask, naturally, is this where the Dorothy's are supposed to come? Silence. Up for the interviews? No answer. Only the baleful glaze. Dead silence. The hum of the air conditioner. The illegal smoke rising toward the ceiling. I'm crumbling. I thought this was going to be my big break and it's coming down to this madness. It's more than I can take. I'm breaking up, breaking apart. This is my only hope, Obi-Wan Kenobi. I want a change in my life so much and I have tried everything. And here at last, what I think is my big break. And it's all going so wrong and so weird. And these people are staring at me. God, you weirdos. What else can I do? Nothing. The stress, the anxiety, not of a day or a month looking for a job, but of a whole life of anxiety and fear and stress coming to this one point. I simply break down. And I do what any of you would do in the same circumstances, I think, under similar stress. I burst into song. It's called All Too Soon. And it goes a little bit like this. My hair's a disaster. I can't let them see me this way. I can't seem to get ready. How about later today? I'm a very busy person. And I guess I just assumed. You know, it's been so crazy lately. I haven't even finished my tomb. It's my signature tune. It's all too soon. I was done it by bacon. Four packs a day. Gun was involved. My head got in the way. My car hit a wall. Smoked too much crack. Fell off a ladder, fade too black. Died on the toilet, and peaceful in my sleep. Squirrel gave me rabies, got knifed by some creep. I drove off a ledge, drowned in a river, ate too much cheese, drank a hole in my liver. I went down the stairs. Stepped on an elf 
Got so depressed, I ran over myself. I ran from the cops. I got an awful disease. I'm the wrong kind of person. In the forest with saw trees. I got left in a rest home. I used up my time. Avoided the check. Now it's the end of the line. Didn't see it coming. It was murder by wife. That's what it was. It ended my life. Just silence and bubbles. Cruise ship going under. My last cup of coffee. As the world goes asunder. This is the song. You know the tune. This is the end. And it's always too soon. It's all too soon. It's time to go. Can it really be the end of the show? I could have called ahead before I came up dead. Now the laundry ain't done. This place is a mess. Let me finish the dishes before I say yes. Let me finish the dishes before I say yes. Now, I don't really expect a pause or anything, but still. Not really, but they're so rude with the staring. So I go into the bathroom and throw up. Delicately, right? Ladylike. Muffled. And when I come out of the bathroom, they're gone. Exited. Only three cigarettes still lit and three little ashtrays. Three little streams of smoke heading toward the ceiling, wafting around the helpless smoke detector. At first, I think maybe the song was so bad that they had to walk out. Then I see a big manila envelope on the table, and in big letters, it says, Dorothy. There's one of those murderous little metal clasps that you can't open without badly cutting yourself. And I do. Inside the envelope, I find a sheet of thin paper with the word DEATH printed at the top in huge black authoritarian scary letters, all caps. The letter says, Dear Dorothy, we would like to make you an offer of employment which offer you can refuse if you wish. And there's something about the note and the whole day, really, that makes me think I can't refuse this at all. And that if I'm interested in finding out more about this exciting and challenging employment opportunity, then I should show up at the following location at the noted time. I know at the time, it is, of course, right now. I'm figuring these guys out, right? It is signed, yours sincerely. And then sincerely has been crossed out. And it says, yours truly, death himself. Scrawled at the bottom. I'm still trying to figure out what he meant by that. So I guess they did like the song. I've got the job. I go to the bathroom and throw up again. I remind myself this is the road I'm taking. And I have a few minutes to wax philosophical and to ruminate on the fact sometimes getting what you wish for can actually be kind of ominous. I walk out the door, down the hall, and stop at the desk, order a cab. The cab comes forthwith and I give the driver the address that's listed in the employment offer. 
and I tell him I'm late for an important business meeting. I have a new job, I say. I'm so proud. How nice for you, says the Somali man driving the cab, actually seeming to mean it. I could see him smile in the mirror, his hands lightly and delicately on the wheel, calmly, smoothly, and rapidly taking me down the asphalt of my new road. He stops in front of a Denny's restaurant. Are you stopping for coffee or something? No, miss. This is the address, he says. I'm confused. I open the door. This is it? You're sure? Yes, miss. And I get out and go to the front window to pay him. And I see him then. I mean, I see him. My husband. I can see our whole life together. I'm overcome. I'm making him dinner. It smells delicious. I think we're Egyptian. A busy city outside somewhere. Inside the apartment, our whole life. Clean, Spartan life. White curtains wafting in the breeze. His feet on a hassock. He's watching soccer on TV. Reading Nobel Prize winners and My Life in the Bush of Ghosts. A whole life complete that we have. Happy. And I can see it all. And it's not to be, I know. Not this time. I almost burst into tears. Again. And the thing is, he sees it too. I can see that. It's true. It's real. But not this time. And he smiles, a beautiful smile at me, his hand still resting comfortably on the steering wheel. He says, go on in, miss. Everything's going to be fine. And I know that he knows what had been on my mind, what I'd seen. And he turns and smiles at me again. Everything is going to be fine. He tilts his head at the door. Go on in. And then he's gone. And I'm walking up the concrete stairs to the Denny's door. I want to interject here, if I can. A note about kindness. That man's so kind. You know, I don't think I would have had the courage to go into this place without his gentle encouragement right at that moment. I might have walked away thinking it's impossible or too weird or too strange and I can't do it. So realize as you go through your life that a kind and thoughtful word or an encouraging glance at the right time can change things. It can change everything, even the course of the universe. It's true. I've seen it happen. I walk into the Denny's. The stewardess looks up. She opens her eyes wide and smiles. And she says, You must be Dorothy. What just happened? Who is this girl? Waiting for the bus. Minions dry their eyes. That life is no more. It's a new day, baby. I've left it all behind. Now we see who's boss. I looked in the mirror and asked, Who could that be? The mirror looked back and said, You must be Dorothy. Not my choice, not my fave. There's other things I'd rather do. But I said, Give me anything. And now it fits. The shoe. It really isn't a democracy. It's not like you can vote. 
can't say, I don't feel like it. I've got a doctor's note. It is said my name is Dorothy. On this, they all agree. But I'm new to this gig, I say. Well, what else could you be? What is it, Dorothy? What does it do? Well, there's a clientele to serve, and I guess that would be you. Here we are, minions and me, stuck between the dead and the living. You gotta fix it if it's broken, we're not joking. Dorothy call on line three. Ninety-two people think they're invoking. You gotta fix it if it's broken, Dorothy has spoken. Bell rings. The chorus sings. You. Must. Be. Dorothy. Dorothy.